Well, I'm glad I chose my title well because it's on the plaque. So it's very short and pithy. Um, just a little straw poll before I get started. How many people came to the session and were excited that in the summary it talked about code? Did you actually? Good. If, if you don't find yourself in that category, you probably want to leave now because this is not the session for you. Um, my name is Joe Hesse. I'm the technology director at the uh, Dementia Research Center at UCSF. Um, and what I'm going to talk about today is, if I can get to it, is uh, our, the, the security portions of an application development framework that we developed in-house at the Memory and Aging Center. So this is a custom Java web application framework that we developed to build uh, applications to manage all of our patient data and patient interactions. Um, and... What I'm going to talk about or try and focus on is give you a sense for the structures behind our security implementation um, and then also talk a little bit about the way we use some, some uh, coding patterns to make it extensible for other types of web applications. And, and so it'll, it'll get really nitty-gritty, uh, which will be good. What I won't talk about is this, this is about authorization, not authentication. Our system uses the uh, Spring security framework, which is what a CG turned into, uh, and that handles all of the LDAP or open the ID or any of that stuff. So this isn't about validating who the user is. It's once we know who they are, what are they allowed to do in our application and how do we ensure that that's what they're doing. Uh, just briefly, I want to tell you a little bit about our environment uh, so you get a sense for why we did something as complex and uh, crazy as this. Um, so we have many different research projects in our center, and these projects share some of the same participants. The staff that work on these projects are often uh, uh, hired and supported across these projects. So uh, a lot of different fine-grained control about who should be able to access what records, and, uh, and that's why we kind of had to roll our own here. Um, we also have a requirement to integrate data across all these different modalities. If, if you know anything about dementia, people do MRIs, they do cognitive testing, they have an exam with a physician, you talk to their caregivers about how they're, they're uh, performing in the world with their daily activities. Um, and so having all this data in different databases, even though some of this is at different, you know, different institutions, would be really difficult for the research. So we wanted to build a database where we could say, this user who's over at the MRI center at the SFEA can log in and deal with the MRI data, but not access this data. So another uh, reason why we, we took this approach. And then, you know, most of you know about HIPAA and PHI and all that, and we're like smack dab in the middle of that. We don't do anything that isn't completely highly regulated for patient confidentiality. All right, so the first, and, and so because we built this ourselves, we sat down uh, three or four years ago and said, okay, well, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to build our web application framework? And so, uh, you know, the first basic requirement is, you know, you need to restrict or allow access to different parts of your application, depending on the users and, and what roles they have. So we said, okay, well, how are we going to structure this functionality so that we can parse it out and decide what is a unit that somebody can be authorized to do? Um, how are we going to structure these user accounts and what rights they have? Uh, and then how are we actually going to check this authorization as part of the workflow of the application? So the first section, I'm going to go through our design for all of this. So the first part is, a, this, is this is the thing that is the most, most unorthodox and will be not familiar to most of you. Um, we decided to break our application down into what we call actions. And so every, it's not actually every page that's displayed, but every kind of page flow. So if you think about writing a web application, you may have an entity like a patient. And you're going to have a screen where you can edit that patient information. You're also going to have a screen where you can view or delete or add patients. And so we thought of that as an action. Uh, and, and that first one in the table, lava, CRMS, people, patient, patient. That's kind of how we define that entity action. And that action, um, you know, has all of these these flows associated with it. So, um, what else? So the other thing, let me just break down the action instance is uh, is a reserve term that we use to allow people who are customizing the application to override the standard functionality of an action. So just kind of inject their slight customization. Um, so Lava is the name of our framework, and that means it's the base functionality. 
CRMS stands for Clinical Research Management System. That is the application type, which we call a scope. So our application framework can build calendar reservation systems, can build you know, any kind of web app you want. But once we get into the clinical research space, we've defined a scope and a set of functionality, which is for the clinical research. That's this next part of it. Then people, patient, and patient, that really stands for like the tabs and sections in the interface where you are. And I'm going to show you some examples of that. So these three examples. This is our patient screen from our demo application. And if you look up at the URL, you can see that it kind of is pretty easy to see what action you're on. This is the CRMS people patient patient action. Uh, and this really uh, comes down to demo is the instance of the application. CRMS is the type of application, the scope for this action. People is where we are roughly in terms of business flow. Uh, patient management, or the patient section, is the section that, and then we may have 20 different actions that are, are part of patient management, and that's the target. And when we have an entity action like this, which is all about editing, you know, adding, edit, view, delete, we just simply refer to it, the target as the same name, you know, as simple as possible. Um, so that gives you a sense for, you know, that action. Here's another example where uh, the home prefs change password action, so we're in the home tab preferences, we're on the change password action. Um, and just as a final one, uh, core admin auth, auth user. So this is the admin section, author, admin module authorization section, the authorization users list. So I'm beating a dead horse, but the actions are really important to understanding how we do this because the permissions tie into that. So that was how we decided to structure our application functionality and give everything a name that we could say, yes, you have access to that. The other thing about it is that action structure gives you a nice hierarchical um, structure to use wildcards so somebody can have access to everything in the patient section you know, by using asterisks, and, and you'll see that in a moment. So then the next question is, how do we structure the relationship between users and these actions? And we said, well, there's no need to reinvent the wheel here. Role-based security is pretty much the name of the game anywhere. It's the, it's the way that, the most manageable way to handle things. So every user in the system needs to have a user entity. Users should be grouped into groups that, you know, it's easier to manage uh, security related to groups than to individual users because users may come and go, but roles stay the same. Groups uh, or users, because it's flexible enough to, to allow this, are assigned specific roles. And so a role might be a system administrator, a data manager, a data entry person, a coordinator, a nurse. Um, and then roles themselves are what are assigned permissions on actions. So either permission or deny. And so this is our uh, entity relationship diagram for this structure. Um, you can see that there's an auth user table which is related to the role table through an auth user role table, pretty standard stuff. Uh, auth users are in groups, linked on the auth user group, and then auth group is also roles can be assigned to groups. And then the permissions themselves are, uh, are tagged onto roles. And one of the things that you notice about our permission table is those different components of the action are the individual properties on that permission. Um, so let's take a look at some specific permissions here. So this is a list of, it's kind of in our demo database, the default permissions that we have in here. And so this is looking at the role, whether this permission is a permit or a deny role, and what permissions might match up to this uh, permission or deny. Um, and just to start from the first one, um, if you have the affiliate role, you would be permitted to do any action in the system, but really just view it. Yeah. Let me point now to, you know, you would say, well, what about administrative actions? They shouldn't be doing those, clearly. Um, that's where our default permissions come in. So there is a role called default permissions, and um, there is a default deny to anything in the core admin section that applies to everybody. And I'll talk about the algorithm for determining, you know, what order to process permissions later on in the talk. But you'll notice the system administrator specifically has a permit on the core admin and nobody else does. So this is kind of how we've structured things. This, I mean, this can get very fine-grained. Uh, we have not found in practice that we need to get all that fine-grained, um, that generally most users uh, have access to most functionality, but um, it, it's, it's it, that's mostly a, a factor that we're using parallel systems and we still have our client server system in place and we can't lock that down 
the same way that we are here, so we haven't rolled much of that out. But the structure is there, and I wanted to make sure that we saw that. The asterisks are, are actually wild cards. So, um, and I will mention now, and it, it becomes uh, important later on, that um, there's a concept of, of one permission overriding another if they kind of conflict in this namespace. And the idea there would be is if you are at least as specific or more specific, then you override the, the default permission. So this default permission deny, if my sysadmin said permit core, that actually would be, that would not override the core admin. You know, it's just, you have to make these decisions when you're implementing things, and as long as it's well documented, it doesn't really matter, and it, it's in the algorithm. But. So that, that was our approach to permissions. So then the next question that we had is, all right, we've got this structure. Presumably we know when the user's logged in what they're allowed to do. So when should we check this? You know? Makes sense. So uh, we've got a standard model view controller layer web application structure, so we check it in the controller layer. Um, just a couple uh, things to point out. We talked about how actions have different flows associated with them, like the patient action has an edit, and a view, a delete. Uh, we use Spring Webflow for this, and it, it actually programmatically generates all of these flow types, these page flows for actions based on how the actions are defined. And the other thing that happens in the flow builders are we define which of those actions are authorization actions. So not every entry point needs to be authorized, but generally most of the flow entry points are authorization events. And the things like next page on a list are generally not authorization. If, you, if you're on this, the screen and you've got the page displayed, these kind of post-refresh events are not uh, hitting the authorization check. We, uh, we cache the results of the authorization checks so that it's quicker on repeat, repeated lookups. And uh, we use a delegate pattern to abstract um, the, the way that the check is done um, in the different applications. So, for example, in a calendaring-based system, you may want to check based on what groups of calendars this person has a role related to. In a, in our system, the CRMS system, it's what projects the person has a role based on. Um, so the underlying check of permission against action is in a base class, but these other kind of contextual, well, this role I know can do this action, but can they do it in this action for this project is delegated to um, another subclass with, with this delegate pattern that we'll get into. Um, and we'll look at this in a little more detail right here. So this is a sequence diagram, so time is going downwards, um, just to kind of make it very clear what's going on here. So the user request, getter post, um, we've got this Webflow director, which is basically uh, mapping URLs to actual controllers. Uh, it calls the setup form on the controller, and the reason we do that first is so we're actually loading up the backing objects for the form prior to checking the authorization. That's because we actually want to be able to authorize not only based on the action type, the page, but the content behind the page. It may be that you have access to this action, but the data that you want to access on this is you actually don't have access to. So that's why we do setup form before the authorization check. The authorization check happens. The controller calls into our authorization manager. This is like a service layer thing, um, but it's not transactional. It's more just sitting around in the application space taking care of business. Um, and it looks up the authorization delegate for the scope. So remember I talked about CRMS scope versus core scope. There's a different authorization delegate for each of those. And so it gets the right delegate class, calls is authorized on that class, and then whatever the state is of that comes back here and they either get an error message saying they're not authorized or, or they get the page displayed. So this is a little bit closer view of that uh, delegate pattern and the caching strategy that we use. Um, so once again, the controller calls into the auth manager uh, to determine whether the action is authorized for the current user. Um, we get the delegate. We call to the delegate. The delegate goes and actually gets a permission cache that is stored with the user object. So the user object is in session state, and it has its own permission cache. So every time we check whether they have permission for an action, we just store the result there. So it's very fast if they hit back on the same page. Um, if it is in the permission cache, we, uh, we just ask the cache. 
Is it authorized? And come back. If not, what we have to do is we get all the roles that the user has, and we loop through that, and we call into our authorization role cache. So this cache is at runtime when the system starts up. We loop through all of the actions that are defined in the system and all of the permissions and roles that are defined, and we just generate a nice map that says this role has this authorization on this action. So at runtime, you're talking about just looking up keys in a, in a hash map. It's very, very fast. You know, it takes, depending on the size of the app, uh, you know, it could take 20 seconds at app startup time, but that's a, you know, it's a fine thing to, a fine trade-off to make. And also, uh, the way that that cache is, um, is structured is, and, and we'll see this when we drop into the code in a minute, um, if you want to reinitialize that cache as an administrator, because some permissions have changed at runtime, um, that cache will have a different modified time. And up here, one of the first things it's doing, this auth delegate, is checking to make sure the user cache is uh, not more rec not older than the, than the role cache, because if it is, we just drop what's in the user cache and start over. So, uh, and so basically, the idea is, if you're authorized for an action on any of your roles, then you're good to go, and we just return back. Uh, but if, you, if we do determine you're authorized or if we determine you're not authorized, we then actually store that result back in the user cache as well. So this is our, this is, can everybody see that? It's okay? No? Um, well, I'll talk through it. <laughs> so this is, this is the, uh, the base is authorized method um, in, the, in the authorization manager. Uh, actually, no, in the authorization delegate. Uh, so, like I said, we get the permission cache from the user object that's passed in. We check the initialization time against the cache modified time for the role. Uh, and if the, uh, the role, if that is not working out, the user cache gets cleared so that we know that we're not giving them permissions they don't currently have. We do that, uh, is the authorization check for this action uh, in the user cache. I'll point out here there's this authorization context object that's being passed in. That's key to this delegation pattern. So the CRMS scope uh, in subclasses of all of these things can create its own authorization context. So in our application, it's really important what the current project is or what the current patient is, and that's part of the context that we're then checking. These caches not only store whether you have the rights to that uh, action, but there's a sub-map with keys relative to individual projects. Um, and then, uh, like I said, if it's, if it's not in that cache, we loop through, through the roles and store it back in there. So just a pretty straightforward thing. But the nice thing about it is nobody needs to write that code again. Anything that you need to do, if you've got a different app that has different constructs, like an HR app where people have permissions based on departments, not projects, um, all of that context is abstracted out from this layer using a delegation pattern. Uh, I talked about that role cache initial initialization. That's a really long uh, piece of code, so I just wrote some pseudocode to talk about that. Uh, and this is what happens at runtime or anytime we need to reload that role cache. So we passed in all of the actions uh, and all of the permissions. Uh, we break them out into role permissions versus the default permissions. And for every action, we get the events that are authorization events. And for each event, we go through and add a key to our cache for that action and event pair. So patient view, patient add, patient delete. Uh, then for each role in the system, now this isn't role by individual users. This is just, you know, if a sysadmin has a right on an action, that is true across the universe of users. So this is just the lookup table. Um, so for each role, for each action, we put in true or false whether that role, based on their permissions and the default permissions, has uh, access to this action. So is it fair to say you're basically caching your role authorization table? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this, uh, this determination about whether the role has access to the, uh, the action uses an is-permitted routine. Um, and that, basically, that algorithm looks like this. Um, if any of the role permissions denies the action, then it's denied. Just, you know, if, if the role is explicitly denied access to the action, you don't, you don't have access. And we move on. If any role permission permits the action, then we just need to make sure that that permission isn't overwritten by a default deny, like that core admin thing that we were talking about before. Sorry. The, uh, the admin section is, is pretty much overrides most of those other uh, permissions. 
If we get past that and we don't have any information yet, then we just check to see is there a default permission that denies the action? If so, it's denied. If, there, if there's none that denies it and there's one that allows it, then it's permitted. If not, it's denied. I mean, in our environment, we would rather have somebody get an error message saying you're not able to do this than, um, than not. So I don't know. This, this doesn't strike me as like a standard thing. There's not like a, a white paper out there that says this is how you determine how to do this. It's just the choices that we made. Uh, based on how we thought would be efficient to structure these permissions, um, you know. Question. Why did you need to deny? Yeah. So the question is, why do we even need the concept of a deny? And we were really initially thinking. Uh, we like this idea of structuring actions into sections and modules and thinking that we wanted to have a very, very you know, small set of permissions that would work for uh, maybe a lot of roles. And so having this ability to do a default deny at a particular level of specificity gave us a lot of control um, and would allow us to do things with like one permission that wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily, but we may have missed something that you're seeing, and, and if I'm happy to talk with you after, I mean, it, it may just, like, I think this, this also evolved over time, so I can't necessarily guarantee that the algorithm we ended up with when we started didn't drop out to a, a allow, you know what I mean? Default denial would match with what you said. Yeah. If you assume one thing would be denied, right. it's, if you had a default allow, and you only occasionally I think it's I think it's this right here, this two A. It's the idea, you know, if you didn't have the denies in there, there wouldn't be this way to say, yeah, we know that normally you have permission at this level going up, but there's this one action down there in the chain that you don't have access to, and and we just st structurally thought it should be in that area. Um, but there's a question in the background. Yeah, but I, I would just oh, the uh, uh, the thing about allowing Yeah, and that's that's kind of, I mean, I think this may be, when you look at the algorithm this way, it's a little bit more complicated. Like, when you look at that table that we had before, um, and actually I've got it next, when we look at this table, it's a little easier to see, you know, um, what people have access to. But you're right. One of the things that we had talked about, and it's a screen that we haven't coded yet, but it would be very trivial to do it actually, on the user record, have a table that lists all of the actions that they're permitted to do and another table that lists all the actions they're denied to do. So if you add one of these, you could just look and, and see. And same for every role, because we've got that lookup table. So, um, And you could even, because we have the algorithm to create that lookup table, you could even make a change, say, preview, you know, use that cache table to see what the results would be for this particular user, commit it. Um, but we just haven't, we've got a very small shop. And as you can see, the permissions are pretty straightforward. Either you can edit and, and do stuff or not. Um, and we've got one little area that we're, we're blocking off. And in fact, after the last talk that I just sat through, I think I'm going to make that a different app entirely. You know, so There's no reason that we're denying admin's functionality to the users because they shouldn't even have, it shouldn't even be in the same app. Um, all right, so that's a question in the background, right? So the question is, uh, how deeply down does this go? And um, to jump to the end of my talk, because we've used these delegation patterns, they're, they are extensible to that degree. So for example, one of the things that we uh, would like to do in our application, and is pretty con consistent in other clinical research or clinical trials application, is to tag every, um, every variable or, or column in our system as either having uh, protected health information or not. And then you can extend the role table for CMS auth role, which we already have, uh, to include a PHI flag. So this would then be saying, 
this role not only has access to these actions, but has PHI access versus this is a role that doesn't have PHI access. And then what that allows you to do is filter the data coming back through so that you obfuscate the PHI. Um, that's a pretty classic thing. Um, where we started was this, this action level. And so it isn't really that, it, it's not, it, it's not at, the, at the table database level. I think, um, if, and it's not so much that it's not fine-grained at that level, but that's like we're at the, the Java website, where if I was going to do it at that level, it would be more object property that I'd be thinking about doing it, um, applying the permissions. But um, So now I'm going to shift into the second uh, part of this talk, because uh, that's basically the structure, the, the underlying what we did. So the next thing that, that we need to do, and this is where the... Um, the generalizability of our code uh, became important is we need to filter the data access needs based on the particular needs of the application. As I already described, um, let's see. So there's two parts to this. One is what we have already, and I've shown you, can say, you know, you have access to this, this action. So these sets of screens. There's nothing in there that says, you only have actions to this sets of screen when the object that you want to display is something you have access to. Right? We don't have anything there yet. We don't have anything that says this is a patient record you have access to. We just have, you can access the patient screen. Um, the other thing is, how do you, you know, the other part of security in our applications, how do you restrict the data that's displayed on these screens to just those things that people are authorized to? So this is getting more to your question of, locking down to certain values or, or rows that people might have access to. Um, so the first thing about the CRMS scope or the CRMS application space is um, every patient is associated with at least one research project. And we decided that it made the most sense to assign a permission to access and modify data on a project-by-project -project basis. So basically, it's really project that rules are assigned to, to users. Um, so we extended the authorization structures to support this concept that people would have roles in the context of a particular project. Um, we can also use wildcards here, so you can set somebody up so they have, they have this permission in the context of all projects. Um, just depends on what projects are in your system. Some of the things that we have used this for um, is we have multiple instances of this application at our center, and some of them are multi-site clinical trials. So this is how we segment out the group in Alabama has access to their patients. The group at Mayo, Rochester, has access to their patients. The UCSF coordinators have access to all the patients, that kind of thing. Question. Yes? So the projects are a, a collection of individual patient records, then, in a sense? It's more, uh, the question is, the project is a, a collection of individual patient records. It's more, it, it's a one-to-many relationship, and right. uh, that's the next screen, okay. patient to project. Okay. Uh, and... Let me go back. There was another one last point I wanted to make. Um, we extended the base class. I talked about, you know, patients and entities. You know, we have a base class for all entities, and we extended that um, for C the CRMS to support this patient and project authorization structure. Um, we also use the Hibernate Persistence layer. I don't know if people are familiar with that. It's one object relational mapping tool. It has a really nice uh, filtering mechanism, which we have used to uh, apply this project authorization filtering across the board for every query that hits the database, and it's, it's quite nice. <coughs> this, this gets to the question of, uh, this is the entity relationship diagram for patient-to-project relationship, very straightforward. There's a project table. We call it project unit, which unit is how we divvy up, you know, Alabama versus Mayo versus uh, UCSF. Uh, related to an enrollment status table, which is just a very... Uh, denormalized structure of how people move through enrollment statuses relative to a project, and then the patient record. Um, and as I said, it's not necessarily that you're given permission to a patient who is enrolled in a project, but as long as they have a relationship to that project. They may have been referred, they may have declined, but there are then records associated with that patient relative to that project that you need to be able to access. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the extensions that we made to the base entities that we talked about in the first half to support this project context in the CRMS. And so 
this is our particular need that we needed to do, but the framework was designed to support, like I said, if you're building an HR app, and it would be department context. So you can put it in, in the context of the own app, your own apps that you build. The first thing that we did is we modified the auth user role. So this is a relationship of user to role or group to role. And we modified that and added a project unit property to that structure so that now a role is assigned to a group in the context of a project or a wildcard, meaning all projects. So now we, now we know this a, this, these actions that are, are allowed by this role are only allowed in the context of these projects. So uh, very nice. Um, the authorization user object, which is this representation of the user that is in the session state, was extended to add a bunch of uh, properties and lists that, um, similarly to how we generate the role cache at runtime, when the user logs in, one of the first things we do is we expand out all of these wildcards, like access to all projects, into a list of actual projects that the user has access to. That way our SQL is much easier to write. The SQL, like, this was a refactoring because the SQL was, like, 17 subqueries and very complicated. And now we just have a, an in-clause with the list of projects. And, you know, our database has 50 projects. That's not bad on an in-clause. Um, and the authorization delegate, so we've talked about this structure that gets called up for the is authorization check. That was extended, that routine, and we'll look at that specifically. And then I also pointed out earlier that authorization context object that's passed into the authorization calls. And so we created a, the, the core authorization context has nothing in it because there's no context at the core level. There's no projects or departments. It's for things like admin functionality. CRMS, our context is the project name essentially. So it's basically a glorified map wrapper around that, but it also knows how to um, create a cache key to look up these role assignments using whatever the context is. So that context is completely abstracted out from the code. So you guys can write, what, you know, we can write whatever we need to. This is just a screen showing how we added that project user to the auth user role. So, you know, pretty straightforward. And down here now, this is the, the, the bottom part of a, a user screen. And you can see the roles assigned to this user. Um, so we're a coordinator for all projects, and we're a data manager for the clinic projects. That's how you would read that. Um, so I talked about needing to extend the, uh, the entities. So what we've got so far, I think, if I recall correctly, we've got roles and we've got actions, and now we have a relationship between users and groups and roles and actions based on particular projects. Well, if we're going to do an authorization check when somebody requests data, we need to know if that data, you know, what project that data is in. You know, like, we need some link there. So we needed to extend the base lava entity. And what we did is we created two methods that are kind of check methods and then the data getting methods. So um, every entity that's a CRMS entity is either a patient authorization entity or a project authorization entity. And the way to think about that is if you're a record and you've got pretty much like a one-to-many or one-to-one -one relationship to patient, you're patient auth. You know, I can ask you, what's your patient? And you've got a very clear answer to that. You don't exist if you don't have a patient. You know, it's referential integrity. So uh, if you are patient auth, if you return true to that, you need to return your patient to that get patient method. Uh, project auth is if you are, you know, specific to one project. So, for example, you're an enrollment status record, or in our case, you're a visit. A visit has to happen in the context of a particular project. So you get that project back uh, by get project. Why this is important is because the uh, authorization delegates can now inspect the entity that's the backing object behind the action, find out are you, uh, you know, what project do you belong to, and does this user have access to that project? Same thing that would happen in an HR application or something like that. So let's look at some more detail here. So this is a little bit more code. This is the extension of the authorization delegate for CRMS. So this actually is a new calling signature for is authorized. Uh, we added this lava entity. Um, all the rest is the same. We passed in a role permission cache the user, the action, but now we're also passing in the, the backing entity. And so this method is called by the controller layer, so clearly controllers that are CRMS action controllers derive from a controller that knows to add that backing object in. So once again, it's just a nice parallel 
subclassing of all the structures. So the entity that's passed in, the first thing we do is we check uh, to make sure it's a CRMS entity. If not, there's something horribly wrong here. You know, let's just bomb out. You know, I would rather say you don't have permission at this point. Like, I don't know why something's wrong, but something's wrong. Um, the next thing we do is we check to see if it's project authorization. If this record is, if the data object is associated with just one project, that's a very simple lookup. We then just call, we get the project from the entity, and we just call is authorized on our delegate using that project. So we look up in the cache key, you know, do we have access for that? If not, and it's actually patient authorization, then we need to do one special step. We need to actually do a loop. We take the patient object, get all the enrollment status records for that patient, get the projects from there, um, loop through that. So a little bit slower, a little bit more data access involved. For us, it's okay. We have a, a low transaction load system. Maybe needs to be refactored if you're talking about uh, an OLPPS type of system. Um, let's see. And, you know, if, if the entity is neither patient entity or a project entity, there are some records in the system that are not associated with patients, very few. Um, we just check, and you have to have permission to on that action uh, in all projects, so, or actually in any project. So uh, we just pass in a, a wild-carded authorization context and say, if you have access to this action in any project and this entity isn't associated with any particular project, then great, go ahead, we're fine. So another kind of like fall through to... Uh, but the nice thing about this is, like I said, just keep coming back to this, we want to have one web app framework that we use for different kinds of applications, and the problem that we sought out to solve by this delegate pattern was, you know, the application context is going to be different in all of these different environments, and, and I, don't, I can't even presume to know what the security constructs that we're going to want to group around and assign roles on are in the application that I haven't even sat down to spec yet. So that's kind of why we built this delegate pattern. Um, I wanted to talk about this hibernate filtering. So we mentioned this before. This is a really nice feature. So if you look at that uh, authorization code when we are looking um, that we extended to check the backing object, the entity behind an action, if I've got a list of 10,000 items, that is not how I want to approach that problem. I do not want to loop through that list and call is authorized after looping through all the, you know, this is not going to work. So what we do is we augment the structures that we've built with a filtering mechanism in Hibernate. So just a quick um, statement about Hibernate. Hibernate persistence layer writes all the SQL for us. You can actually go down and, and write your own SQL if you need to. We haven't found that we've needed to yet. We have a couple stored procs that we call. Um, so you write XML mapping files that link the tables and columns to Java objects and properties. It's, it's a standard object relational mapping tool. As I said, it's got a filter mechanism. What that allows you to do is essentially write a piece of the where clause. And that piece of the where clause just gets added to every query that goes through. Um, so you can imagine there'd be some issues of you don't want to put the where clause on if it's going to be referring to columns and tables that don't exist in the SQL that you have just called. So there is some things that we need to do. Um, and the filter can be turned on or off depending on whether the objects that you are listing are project auth or patient auth. And uh, we can parameterize it programmatically with that list of projects that the user has access to that we put in their CRMS auth user objects. So, um, let's look at, uh, you know, these are dumbed-down versions of these filters, but you get the idea from it. The project auth filter. So remember we said every entity has a project auth or a patient auth uh, property. And so the project auth property also um, means that anytime that entity is involved in one of these queries, the project auth is going to get turned on, and the project auth filter is basically says, Project, you know, every every entity that is associated with project in a one to one to one relationship usually has a project name, has a column in it. It might be an ID in your system, you know, a unique ID is in, and then there's a subquery select the project from the table where the project is in this project list, and this is the project list that the user has access to. So it's very tight; it's just one subquery. But now, 
the patient list only returns the patients. And we know even if there's even if we screw up the action permission, they're still not going to see data that they don't have access to. You know, so there's this data filtering and the functionality filtering, and they go hand in hand. Um, the patient auth, similarly to that routine where we then had to loop through the enrollment status table to get the projects to check, um, we just need to do a subquery over to enrollment status to get the patient structure in there. Um, one thing I didn't mention there is not every entity in your system, if it's a patient, if it has a relationship to a patient or a project, is going to have a simple relationship where that that value is in a column in that entity, you know, that object. So you can redefine the patient auth filter for any particular Hibernate mapping. These filters are the generic filters. So on the entity, we would say use the patient auth filter or use the patient auth filter, and here's what the SQL is for this specific entity, and you can get as complex as you need then. Um, so that's a really nice feature of Hibernate that even if, you know, if, if nothing else from this is applicable, but if you're, you're thinking about Hibernate, that's a great part of that. Um, and how this works in practice is all of our queries in the system um, end up using a Hibernate callback mechanism. So it goes down through complicated layers that abstract out everything in the world and ends up in a, in a callback mechanism. And this is essentially the, the structure where we initialize a query, enable filters, set parameters, um, do the query, disable the filters, return the result. The enable the filters um, looks like this. We have our auth user object, which is part of the filter that gets passed through the query. So I'll also mention, if you're calling a query and you don't want it filtered by the user's permissions, there's lots of times we write queries in the applications that are for our use, doesn't actually, you know, we're going to get something. Doesn't matter if the user has permission to it. We're going to make a decision based on that. So you just don't pass in an auth user object. If there's no auth user object, no filters get assigned. Um, if there, um, if there is a user, we get the auth deo filters. This is an abstraction. I'll show you a piece of code in a moment, but that'll go through and for that auth user, apply all of the filters that. Um, that are in this Opdeo filters result and use the project list. And that looks like this. This is the get Opdeo filters on our extended CRMS auth user. We basically return a valid patient filter. So this is, just happens to be on every single one of our um, entities, and it says patient ID can't be less than zero. You know, just helps with some bugs we were running into. But then we also check, um, the, the other nice thing about this is if somebody has a wildcard in their project access on a role, then they have access to all projects. And so we know they have all project access, which means we just simply don't turn on the filter. Right? So if all patient project access is false, then we pass in and we say, you put on this filter and use my project access list. Otherwise, you don't need to filter because I've got access to it all. Same thing with all project access. Uh, patient project access and project access is something I didn't talk about, but it's one of those nuances that we created in our application that says we can define a role where somebody has access to all of the data for patients they already have access to because of a role on another project. Right? So this would allow me to assign a coordinator to a project, and they have access to all of the patients that have a relationship to that project and all of the data collected on the other projects for those patients, but not any patients that are not in their project. You know, this is... This is desirable because we have a lot of people who rotate in through our project. You know, it 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 came out of a, a user requirement session with the business owners, and you know, this is this is where we get into your question of how do we extend this uh, system. Um, let me show you this picture, which is our group. This is who we write code for. Um, it's a great group of people. All my team is in there dispersed around. And, and this is my contact information and the people who were most uh, critical for making this happen. But we talked about um, getting down to that fine level of control. Um, there is nothing about this structure that can't be extended with an entirely different auth construct that gets added into this entity relationship diagram. So if you wanted to have authorization to individual database columns or properties, you could certainly extend that here. I think there are other tools that, that you could look at uh, that are designed to approach security from the perspective of the structure of database tables and columns. But there's nothing about this that couldn't be extended that way. So that's my presentation, and I'll be happy to take questions for the time that we have left.
So, in the front. Yeah, beautiful job. It's your, your application, group, your requirements, like your glove. Um, I see that. Beautiful. Do, do you look at, like, doesn't HL7 have? What do they have? Like, what were yeah. the industry standards yeah. that you probably looked at and rejected, right. and how do they compare? Right. So um, the question is, uh, what other standards were out there that might have been able to apply to this? And I actually think, um, so for us, we actually are pretty much what you'd call a shadow system. I think people who write web apps in the university environment know about shadow systems. It's your, your department's finance app. You know, it's like we are not the official medical record for these patients. You know, there are clinical systems that are for that. So we actually have a very clear line between our systems and anything else at the medical center that speaks HL7. So we didn't really have any constraints or any, there was nothing for us to leverage. We were really starting from, you know, here's a database environment and here's uh, Eclipse, you know, make something happen. Um, the thing that I think most people would look at to use in a simpler environment would be, I mentioned the CG security framework. So that provides very well written and very well tested um, LDAP integration, authentication integration, all of that. You also can then map those authentications to URLs um, in your system. So if you have structured your app using like RESTful API and you know, you know we kind of have that with our API structure, you could say, at that level in the XML configuration for the CG security, people who are authorized by this mechanism have this role, and they can execute these pages. You know, that gives you your first step. That's that first thing we talked about, that application, that action level security. Um, we just started out with a business um, case that seems impossible to code. I mean, our first iteration on this was a view that joined all of these tables together and joined into everything. So we had a view that joined all of these role structures into a list of patients and projects that the, the user had access to. You can imagine this table is huge. And then this got joined into um, everything else through these Hibernate filters. You're saying you wanted the tailored solution you didn't even really look. Standards yeah, yeah, the standards were... The standards were, um, you know, we, di we didn't really see anything at the time. The other thing is at the time when we started out with this, things like the Spring Framework were pretty new. Uh -huh. Things like Groovy or, like, the web application frameworks now are, like, I wish I were starting today, you know, because I wouldn't have had to write so much code myself. Um, but I still haven't seen anything. I haven't seen anything that's a plug-in module for role-based authentication that gets down, that's extensible, that gets to this this level. I mean, if something's out there, it'd be great to see. But yeah, also what HL7 did in this regard. Yeah, I there's there's a question in the back, but one one last comment is just I think um, a lot of these security standards are are written for the particular problem at hand. So, for example, you know, service oriented architecture has a particular security construct associated an authentication construct associated with it. Uh, we just decided once we got into our app. We wanted to have a lot of fine-grained control over what we were presenting. And we haven't even pushed it to the level of, of what the gentleman in the back was asking about, which is filtering on the screen based on the next level of kind of things you might want to do. Fortunately for us, that's not a huge requirement, but, you know, when it does become a requirement. So there was a question in the back. Yeah, Um, I think it's the better way to say it would be um, if what's going to happen in the authorization checking is if you don't have something in there that allows, then you're going to drop down to uh, a drop. It, like if you had an IP table or a, a firewall list, you'd have all these permits, but if you didn't hit any of those, you'd drop through the bottom and you'd be denied. So we do. If, if there are no roles in the system and there are no actions and there's no anything. You, the first thing you get when you log in is permission denied. You don't have the you don't have the permission to access the welcome screen. You know. So yeah. Um, and you had a, a follow on. Yeah. Um.
So the question is, is there a differentiation between what you can see and what you just don't want to see? And let, let me just clarify that. I.e., the, the people start putting in rules that are basically trying to create views, you know, like some user just isn't interested in some sort of information. And so right. I wonder where, where, the, where the line becomes between the security system versus right. kind of the right. Yeah, so the question is, um, where's the overlap between these kinds of security constructs and maybe personalization structures within an application? And I think the Hibernate filtering structure is exactly that. Um, it would be trivial for me to allow the user on their preferences page to say, I know that I've got access to all these projects, but I don't want to see these three projects which keep coming up and are filling my screens with data I have to page through. And so they could set up those projects and a personalization filter like, remember we were in that, that uh, auth user returning the, the filter to apply? They could just re return, yeah, this person has a, a personalization project restriction filter. And that would just add that, that in clause to, um, to the, the SQL that gets generated by the Hibernate. So you would definitely have to extend the structures here to support something like that. But um, I, I tend to think of the security and the authorization stuff is much more um, not about uh, tailoring how the user wants to use the system, but more about approaching from, from what is the absolute limits of what they can do. Um, the one thing that I could also see being very desirable in a system like this would be um, you know, delegated authority for security, you know, being able to delegate security over certain realms. And you can certainly extend this to do that, but we haven't even touched onto that. But so yeah. So you know one of the things that we um, are doing right now is I'm actually writing a calendaring system for a uh, big microscope down at a scientific lab. And that particular system, the calendar manager will have the permission. We'll go into the permissions and we'll say they can add users and they can modify users. They won't be able to change roles or groups or any of that because that's what we'll set up. But they are the person who people are going to come to for new accounts, and, and we're just going to give them that access. But um, it's, that's kind of like a one-off. It's not really an approach that we've, we've got a, a plan for. But um, Are there any more questions? Oh, another one. Uh, right. So the question is, is this available? Um, so we are actually working right now with the UCSF Office of Technology Management to create a uh, uh, not-for-profit uh, free licensing agreement. And so I've been working with them for a number of months. So we, we do plan to release this as open source but licensed for no charge to other academic institutions or research institutions. And so we're on the way to doing that. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Um, yeah, the PowerPoint should be available through the UCCSC conference site. So, but if you bring me your card or your email, I'll just send it to you. So, if there's no more questions, uh, it looks like it's about time to wrap up. So, thank you.